Welcome to an episode of the award-winning podcast Art Insiders New York. My name is Anders Holst. The theme of the podcast is New York with a focus on behind-the-scenes conversations with fascinating people who are making an impact in the world of art, design and architecture. Paola Antonelli is the senior curator of architecture and design at the Museum of Modern Art in New York, where she also serves as the founding director of research and development. She has been described as one of the 25 most incisive design visionaries in the world by Time magazine. In this interview, Paula talks about her vision of what design is. She believes that design touches every aspect of society and that design has a civic responsibility towards humanity and the planet. Design is the enzyme that makes progress happen. Her biggest ambition is to enhance people's awareness of design and to make sure the world understands that design is not only cute chairs, sleek products and fetching logos. But objects are not irrelevant. The controversial acquisition of the at sign to the MoMA collection shows that collecting is not about ownership per se, since the sign belongs to everyone. We talk about some of the more impactful exhibitions she has organized at MoMA and the 40-plus salons that she has organized that will not only inform the museum and its program, but also inspire the wider conversation in the world outside. Paula also explains the vision behind the Instagram podcast-based project Design Emergency, together with design critic Alice Rosthorn. On a more personal note, we talk about curiosity and adventure as major driving forces in her life, her passion for traveling, and the love for New York. We also get Paula's take on how AI and Riffic Anadol's work, unsupervised, have influenced her perspective on the MoMA collection. Very welcome. We're delighted to have you here on the show. Thank you. Now, we met um, about a month ago at the Salon 42. Which is, a, which is a part of the R&D arm of MoMA. And in your introduction, you mentioned that there is a statement on the wall at MoMA describing what is good design, according to Elliot Noyce. And good design fulfills its function, respects its materials, is suited to methods of production, and combine these in imaginative expression. And I thought that Maybe this could be a good starting point for our conversation here. What is good design? Or rather, what is design? What is your definition and your take on, on design? I can tell you right away, I don't have a definition because it's almost as asking for a definition of art, right? But <laughs> I can tell you that it's not what Elliot Noyce thought was good design in the 1950s. I mean, it, it is that, but it's more. Um, I studied not design, but architecture. And I studied in a university at the Polytechnic of Milan where there were too many people and it was impossible to do anything practical. So we got really good theory. And that's maybe where my attitude towards design comes from. It's not what one normally thinks of design, which is furniture, perhaps products, maybe cars and maybe some graphics, but rather it's a much wider ranging attitude that is always like synthesizing the different means and materials at one's disposal to reach a particular goal. And the goal at hand could be a building, could be a piece of furniture, could be a diagram or an infographics explaining complex data sets on the front page of a newspaper for a white audience. So anything that engages material visual um, outcomes and uh, tries to communicate them or to let them have and solve the function that they were made for is design. 
I see. I've studied many of your, your interviews. You talk about design as some sort of an interface to other areas. You say that science couldn't function without the design. So it also has this uh, cross boundaries, uh, in, uh, sort of an interactive point of view uh, in your philosophy. Sure. I mean, science could work without design, but it wouldn't have much contact with people and with life. So that's what I mean, that design is uh, a discipline that transforms revolutions or big discoveries in science and in technology, it transforms them into life. So just the example that I always give, it's the internet. It used to be lines of code until the designers of Mosaic of the first graphic interface introduced buttons and windows and all of a sudden we could all use the internet or microwave ovens. I mean, there's always this percolating down and to me it would be almost percolating up because everything is for the people and for the planet in the end. So all this percolating up of all these different discoveries is mediated by design and uh, design is extremely important. It's I like to say that it's the enzyme that makes progress happen. But for some weird reason, it's not recognized as such, maybe because it is too fluid, you know, people tend to recognize design when it's chairs, especially when it's either very functional chairs or when they're very expensive chairs, very good chairs, but there's design even in bad chairs. You know, my friend Alice Rothorn talks about the uh, humble and very toxic white plastic chair as one of the most persistent and visible examples of design yeah. in the world in the 20th century. And she's right, right? And that's mm -hmm. an example of bad design that is omnipresent and it is design. Yeah. So I, I saw one, one quote here, one uh, article where the, the person said, global pandemic, climate collapse, war guns, violence, poverty, racism, what does that have to do with design and you answered everything. Yes, so, everything, <laughs> yes. So it's fairly, it, it's fairly broad. You also said that design is about life, but it doesn't mean that objects in itself are not relevant in, in your world. Very relevant, Yeah. very relevant. But in a way, I, to me, they're always a means to an end. Um, and I mean, I, I can stop and appreciate an object onto itself, but I always, naturally put it in context. Let's talk about one of my favorite objects, which is a totally useless object that, um, I mean, I don't know who would consider bringing to an island if the world were to collapse. And that's the <laughs> Tamagotchi, you know, the Tamagotchi. I mean, really, really, what's more absurd? I find it an amazing object, not only onto itself, but because it, it introduces anguish and hyper responsibility in life i mean it's it's an object that is almost like a torture device but it has this uh, incredible function that nobody would think of as useful but uh -huh. it is a function right but it's in context so uh, objects are very important to me but i naturally always put them in relation with uh with the rest it's it's almost like um professional deformation that I have. <laughs> One thing that intrigued me a lot was that you added the at sign to the collection of MoMA. And I, and I was curious about that because there's a fun story here that they ask you, people call you up and ask, so, so where can we see the at sign? And you say, well, it's on your typewriter, just find it. And they say, excuse me. Now, so 
And what? Anders, you said typewriter. Look at you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. Shame. I know. I know. We were talking about that earlier today, that it is a different generation. But does it exist in your collection in some way, shape or form? Or, or how, you know, how does it? Oh, yeah. It's in the galleries right now. Oh. I mean, it is. It's on the wall. So it exists because says who that collecting is about possessing and taking out of circulation, right? I mean, already when you collect design, in many cases, you collect objects that everybody can have. I mean, in our collection, there's a group of objects that I called humble masterpieces that are like the post-it note, the jelly bean, the M&Ms. I mean, all these things that you and I can have and band-aids, everything, all these very simple and inexpensive objects that are absolute masterpieces of design. The M sign goes one degree further because it doesn't even have any copyrights. It's like it belongs to everybody and everyone. It's in the public domain. So it is almost like an impossible acquisition, but a necessary anointment. And I mean, it doesn't mean anything to acquire the at sign because it belongs to everyone, but anointing it, putting it on the wall, uh, putting it in the collection, describing curatorially what it means and why it's so outstanding. That's something that I'm very proud of mm. because my job as a curator, I envision not as somebody that grabs things away from the world, but rather somebody that shows other people what could be relevant and tries to help other people recognize by themselves their, their own relevant examples of design. Yeah, I think that's, that's beautiful. And I learned that curator means carer. Yeah, Latin. And, yes, and it absolutely. does, and it doesn't necessarily imply ownership. So You're very right. You're very right. right. And in French, actually, they say conservateur, conservatrice. So it's about preserving. It's even more explicit. Yeah. I see. But the Boeing seven forty seven that was a bridge too far. No, it was not. It was not that it was a bridge too far. It would have been so great. But um, yeah, let's say that I could not convince some key people to make it happen. But it was really, it was really good. I had envisioned it all. The idea was not to have the 747 at MoMA because that would have been a little too, how can I say, ham-handed perhaps, Mm. you know, and also I don't even know if it would have fit. The idea (laughs) was to do it with flying 747. So I had figured it all out. You know, it was a way to make a deal with the airline and license MoMA's name to the airline. And from the outside, uh, these like two or one or two 747s that were flying through New York would look like they were the MoMA's planes, but in truth, they were all the airlines. And I had spoken with the Federal Aviation Authority. We could put the accession number next to the tail number smaller of course and i had figured it all out you know mm-hmm. if you if you by chance were flying on the moma plane you would get a different boarding pass that you could save as a collectible <laughs> it had uh, a different uh, like fabrics and maybe re-edited cutlery so it was just um, a beautiful way once again to almost flag for people things in life yeah. that are worthy of understanding that are worthy of appreciation and of study because the story of the 747 is fantastic. Yeah. You have a fun job, Paula. I have to say that. Many people must be very jealous of you uh, being able to do these things. Do you do that too? <laughs> yeah, but do That's you, what you do too. Do you, th- mean, <laughs> do you think do you about think- that sometimes that, that no. you're, like, you're like in a huge candy store and, you know, with your intellect, you're, you're, you're doing these things and 
out comes some beautiful things. Oh, for that, for that, I do think. I would say, do you think of people being jealous? I'm like, no, not that much. But yeah, uh, the <laughs> other side, I think about it all the time. And um, and uh, I like to say that I walk around as, as if I were in a cartoon with the, you know, the fire <laughs> hydrant saying hello. Truly, um, I never have a dull moment because I'm interested in things. And it's pretty hard to be in a place without things. I mean, it happens. It's very difficult, right? There's always something. But do you feel sometimes the pressure that that uh, when you have this incredible access that you have to people all over the world and with your activities, and we're going to we're going to talk about the salon and things like that later on here, uh, that you feel that there's so much to do, and are we doing enough? Always. I mean, the anxiety and the attempt to do as much as I can uh, is always there. And uh, I, but I have realized that if I do less, I do better. I mean, nothing new, right? Yeah. I haven't been able to really implement it, but I do believe that that's the case. And there are sometimes, like, you know, I have a friend with whom I'm going to be talking tomorrow morning. She's been working on a book and only on that for the past two years. And I'm sure that book will, will be like life changing, right? Mm. So as human beings, we need to, figure out our pace and how to give the world the best of ourselves mm -hmm. and anxiety, which is a very New York thing and <laughs> busyness, which is a hyper New York thing is not necessarily the friend of real productivity. So um, it's something that I think about a lot. Mm. You are the senior curator of architecture and design at the at MoMA, of course, and the founding director of research and development. What synergies do we have between those two roles? I try on purpose not to make them overlap too much. So the department of R&D is called so because it's a pun with the kind of R&D that you would expect, say, in a corporation. In truth, it's not about testing new technologies, but rather it is about trying to prove to the world that museums can be the R&D of society. So the idea comes from uh, when the uh, financial crisis happened in 2008. I have always had a chip on my shoulder. I even studied economics for two years before switching to architecture. And I've always had a chip on my shoulder because the financial sector, especially, but also the industrial sector, are always considered necessary to the destinies of society, right? So progress cannot happen without Wall Street, right? And instead, the cultural sector is considered superfluous. And whenever there's a crisis, the budgets for culture get cut while the financial sector is too big to fail and all these other slogans. And so when the financial crisis happened, I thought, okay, now it's so clear. People will see that it's not the case that instead the cultural sector can provide the kind of grounding and the kind of steady pace that, that can provide true progress and can get us out of this rut. And so I started the Department of R&D at that time. And our it's a, it's a small department, but I'm very proud of what we do. And we put together these salons that are about topics that are relevant to people, like about death or about dogs or about angels or about you know, AI. So 
we and and we put them together and we always have at least four or five speakers that come from very different backgrounds at least one of them is a curator or an artist and and we just talk about it and, you know the the salon about death was very beautiful for instance because uh, there were artists there was an architect that was trying to integrate burial site into cities and then there was this doctor that was trying to explain to other doctors how to talk about death patients. I mean, it was just fantastic. And the use of art in that all, right? And it's about proving that a museum can be a place where you can come and and be rewired or be helped in your difficult moments at a very personal level too. Yeah. Uh, I had the pleasure of attending the Salon 42, as I mentioned in the beginning here, and the theme was good. So I, yeah. ha I had three weeks to think about good. That was, that was very healthy <laughs> was for me. Was it useful? Uh, very, it? yeah, very oh, helpful. No, and there was yeah. a big list of readings. And, and well, that's <laughs> what we do. And, you know, the reading list, it's, very, it's funny because um, people consider it a gift and it is a gift and you don't have to read it all, but you'll keep it there. And maybe in the future, you'll want to revisit it. So people take the salons very seriously also because of that reading list. And I love that. Yes, I got to know uh, the work of Peter Stringer and uh, Nila Saldana. I loved and Miroslav Wolf uh, really had an impact on me. And I was walking home examining my life from the point of view of doing good. Uh, I don't yeah. think I got great uh, uh, marks uh, or review here, but I, I'm, I'm working definitely on it. But so what, <laughs> what will happen with, I, I should also mention, you, you mentioned dogs, uh, you also have anger, hair. I find that really interesting. And, and also, I love the idea that you, you were weaving, you had these uh, uh, people on stage, and then you had small video uh, inserted from people who gave like two minutes, I think they had, right? So mm -hmm. they, they yep. couldn't go on for too long. And, and that was a really good, good thing of, of, of moving the things along. So, so what, where do you think good will end up? Do you think it will end up in, a, in an exhibition or do you think, or it, it doesn't work that way, maybe? No, it doesn't work that way. I mean, it's funny because the natural place for curators to do their work is galleries. But lately, the practice of many curators has gone elsewhere, not only in other types of spaces, but also online or sometimes in videos, sometimes in podcasts like yours. So there are many other platforms. And I find public programs a great platform. So I'm not sure that an exhibition on good would be any good. You know, <laughs> it might be corny. It might just like be not conveying the same strong message that this conversation amongst these people that you saw has conveyed. So, mm -mm, no, it won't. And in the past, I've done other works that have never become exhibitions, but I consider curatorial projects. I see. And do you spread these uh, through the museum? You spread them, obviously, through the website where you can study all the material. I saw there were great videos there and, and uh, things like that. Are there any other means of spreading the message? No, I could do a better job. Luckily, right now, I have an R&D associate, a colleague that's trying to think about it. Because as far as I'm concerned, once I've done it and it's on my little niche website, I feel so proud. But it's a little <laughs> silly. You know, we're thinking also of a book in which we take the salon, the 42 salons that have happened, and we commission new essays based on each salon yeah. by good authors. You know, so that's one of the ideas that we have. But yeah, no, I haven't done such a good job of, of disseminating them. I'll try. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think you should be too hard on yourself. You're doing an excellent job. Now, can anybody join the uh, salons or are people invited specifically? I mean, I think in our, the audience, because our listeners will say, oh, I'd like to attend one of those. 
can they? Well, first of all, first of all, we live stream them, so oh. anybody can can see them live. And uh, uh, in New York, everybody who asks gets on the list. The reason why it's still a private list and not a public program, it's because I want to avoid the red tape of, of issuing tickets, right? Mm -hmm. So by doing it this way, people can just come. And it's wonderful because very often they're oversubscribed, but we have like three overflow rooms that are great. And then we have the live stream. So anybody can attend. And usually what I do is um, about maybe a day or a little more before I publish on my Instagram, the link for the live stream. So that's mm -hmm. what I do. So I see. So that's, that's a good yeah. thing to know for, for our listeners that yeah. they can, they can mm -hmm. join in now. So I, I, but I love this logic because apparently you're, you're casting a wide net for every sort of t theme that you have. And then you, over, over time you built up an enormous network of people. I know, right? And knowledge. Know. And, and that has an impact. I mean, it's, it's very smart. Um, Thank you. No, I mean, I, I'm very, I like, the, I like the concept. How do you get hold of all these people? Research. I have one person. <laughs> I have one person, my R&D associate, who's uh -huh. brilliant. In some cases, we might have one anchor person that we have already thought of, and then we go, but like death, we started from scratch. Now, we, we, we usually think of the theme, like 98% of the times we think of the theme and then we find the people. There's been instances, for instance, an upcoming salon is the idea of a great person that will be one of the speakers. So it happens sometimes, but if not, yeah, we do research. Let's move on then to your role at MoMA and, and just to just briefly mention a few of, of, of your exhibitions. I know you've done tons of them, but two of them that I really loved was the material ecology um, that I saw and this fashion modern. I love those two. But you, you also mentioned uh, at the Salon Broken Nature, Design and Violence, Design and Elastic Mind. But when you look back, what were the exhibitions that really made an impact on what you want to achieve that really hit the fan, so to speak. Well, first of all, I'm so happy that you saw Material Ecology because it was about the work of Neri Oxman and it's, it opened, I think, like two weeks before the lockdown. So thank God you saw it. Yeah. So it's it's a little hard to say because I'm, I'm, I don't mean to be corny like, when, oh, I, I love all my shows. And I said, <laughs> yeah, I love almost all my shows. There is yeah. one that I don't mentioned that I hated but um, otherwise I love them all um, let's see I think that designing the elastic mind was very important to me because I'm yeah I'm going to talk about designing the elastic mind and broken nature probably those were the two all of the other shows I adored, like Items was so much fun and I'm proud of it. Items was about the 111 items of clothing that had a strong impact on the world in the past 115 years. So it was fun and it was great. But Design and the Elastic Mind and Broken Nature have something in common. They talked about a pivot in the world of design that was really momentous and that gave many designers a sense of belonging and in a way gave them also a spring and, you know, a platform that they could launch from. Mm -hmm. So Design and the Elastic Mind was in 2008, and it was an exhibition about design and science 
without the interface of technology. So the idea was to put together designers and scientists and not only putting them in conversation, but also putting them in galleries together. So it was fascinating. There were these uh, uh, these scientists from UCLA that had done a new type of protein marker that was almost like an alphabet soup that had protein markers usually used colors, but in that case, they also had letters, nano letters, and they were next to this designer that had designed a completely new alphabet that could be injected into cells. So it was just like seeing them come together and also meet in the galleries and hug because they were so happy to have that interface. Truly, it was like two universes that were longing for each other uh, to give each other a different kind of credibility, and they met there. So it's, it really moved me. Broken Nature happened instead in 2018 at the Triennale di Milano, and it was an exhibition, of course, about, um, you know, about the environment. It was based on the idea that we will become extinct and uh, we might as well design a good extinction for ourselves so as to leave a good legacy and not be considered like we consider the dinosaurs, right? I, I know. Is, um, is, isn't that a slap in the face? I mean, that really woke me up when you, when you well, did that introduction of Broken Yeah, life. but it makes sense. Wow. Doesn't it make sense? Yeah. Hey, right. Okay. And what, um, what moved me there was that I wanted that exhibition to be for citizens and the kids that were doing Fridays for the Future would meet in my show and then start marching. I mean, what more do you want? It's like both shows had impact, right? And to me, having impact means making people feel like they are in a safe, in a safe space from which they can propel their new ideas, their revolutionary ideas. So that maybe those are the two that touched me the most. Another thing that I learned from Broken Nature, uh, I, I learned also two things. From Design and Elastic Mind, I learned that you can do an exhibition that is not perfect, that is that doesn't have a thesis that is perfectly realized. You can leave something in the air and tell people, hey, it's not finished, and then they'll finish it for you and they'll have more fun. And with Broken Nature, I learned that you can be a little melodramatic in exhibitions and use emotions to really send the message through. So, yay, <laughs> both. Do you feel in your job that you are free to explore any topic that interests you? You're talking about almost like self-censorship. No, that never. But um, sometimes things don't happen, like design and violence, for instance. Design and Violence is a project from 2013 or even before that started because of the 3D printed gun. I remember the 3D printed gun, that issue, that whole idea was released and I was really stunned. And so I was like, let me see how design can help me understand the contemporary manifestations of violence, right? So I started working on it with a co-curator, Jamer Hunt. And at, at first we proposed it as an exhibition and we proposed it to the whole exhibitions committee and uh, they didn't go for it. And you know what? They were kind of right. Not because it's tab it's taboo, not at all, but because it was not an exhibition. You know, uh, I was telling you the same with the good salon. You know, think about having the 3D printed gun and the, the Kalashnikov and this and that. That's more an exhibition for the Smithsonian or for not an art museum necessarily, maybe a design museum. So it didn't fit there. Mm -hmm. And so it became a website and it was really a great project. It was better as a website because we could also have a conversation with uh, the readers. So that is what happened. Often I cannot 
do what I want because there's no room in the schedule, perhaps, or it doesn't fit with the priorities. But it's never about censorship. It's always about practical, practical conversations. But as far as the salons are concerned, I never, ever stopped in front of anything. I mean, no, I have to say the museum is incredibly supportive. I've never had any request to take something down. I mean, the only thing that happened is once when I did an exhibition about design and safety, showing how design is about safety, there was a poster. It was 2004. There was a poster that showed all of the different disco drugs, right? Mm -hmm. The pills. And it was meant for kids to understand what they were taking so that they would not find themselves, you know, taking ecstasy and that not drinking. You know what I'm saying? So it was all about that. And I remember that the museum told me, oh, does it seem like we are promoting drugs? And and I said, no, it's like the opposite. And so I said, you know, to make sure I wrote it very clearly in the label. That's the only time Mm. that I ever, in my 29 years, got a request to clarify. Yeah. So let's let's talk about the Design Emergency, a project that you started on Instagram Live with design critic Alice Rothson, exploring the role of design in a post-COVID world. You have then put together case studies here uh, from uh, it's, uh, the book is Design Emergency, Building a Better Future. You're dividing the book into four themes, technology, society, communication and ecology. And this came out of COVID and it creates a new platform for you. Can you say a little bit about the design emergency and where it stands now? Do you plan to do another book? We might. We haven't really thought of the book, but so design emergency started in April 2020. So during the lockdown and Alice and I started talking about it after my husband was listening to um, to Fat Joe, you know, the hip hop artist. He was doing Instagram lives every night. And so he said, listen to this, you could do it. And Alice and I spoke, we picked a name <laughs> and then we picked a logo. Our friend Frith Kerr was a great graphic designer, did the logo for us. And then we started and the designers that we were interviewing at the beginning were all really deeply related to COVID, to the pandemic. It was like an anesthesiologist that had designed the split ventilator valve. It was the designer at the Center for Disease Control in Atlanta that had designed the logo for COVID. I mean, the the the, the COVID that we all know, because that's not what COVID, what the virus looks like. It was the designers at BBDO Wellington in New Zealand that had designed the campaign of awareness of uh, the virus in New Zealand. It was these teenagers from Afghanistan, women, female teenagers that were doing, making stopgap ventilators. They were these like lovely geeks that were just engineering all these ventilators. So it was all about this. And then in the pandemic was not really ebbing, but in a way we were trying to go back into life. So we started also interviewing designers and architects and engineers that are trying to make the world a better place. So it was always an Instagram platform and it still is, but now we have a podcast because we discovered that the um, Instagram live was not as watched as during the pandemic when people started gallivanting around the world again. So it's a podcast now. (laughs) And we still have the Instagram as a platform where we publish the pictures that go with the podcast and we still have our double acts just two days ago we released the episode that is a double act between me and Alice that's about violence so 
we have every year we have um, something about hidden heroines of design. We have for Women's Day, we have the hidden heroines of design. We have, we try to do one about violence and then we keep interviewing people. Yeah. So it, it really, it's, it's super exciting. You know, the last interview that we posted was with Pete Udolf, the great uh, landscape architect. So we continue. And, you know, at our motto is that there is always a design emergency, so we could go on forever. And we would like to get to a point where we're platform agnostic almost. You know, I, I don't know when this kind of portability of your product or of your uh, content will, will really happen, but we moved it from Instagram Live to podcast. And now we're trying to understand where the world is going. I'm more visual than an audio person. So I miss the, the Instagram live uh, visuals, but you know, it's, we evolve. Yeah. I was just thinking about that because I read uh, about the design and violence where you said something about without convincing children and their parents and making it something that is asked of politicians and of corporations from the ground up. We will never get anywhere. And I was thinking to myself, so what other platforms could there be for you to use now that you've sort of, you have, you have the museum, you have your salons, you have your design emergency and Instagram to reach really the the masses i mean uh, but maybe that i don't know no <laughs> i don't know i mean if you can help me because truly i think about it a lot yeah you know and of course i could do tiktok but i don't know if i'm a tiktok person you know i i could try but i don't want to pretend to be funny you know i just um i'm trying to figure it out but it's truly that way i mean it's not it's not only from the ground up but ground up really works i'm always bringing the um anti-smoking campaign is an example. Yeah. It's really amazing how it changed the world because it was a 360, a 180, right? And it came really from peer pressure and also from kids' pressure. Let's talk a little bit about you then. Uh, for a change. <laughs> so, well, we talked about me all the time. I know. I, about you. Just joking. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I, I've noticed that, that you're very open and, and very, uh, someone wrote, refreshingly approachable and unpretentious. Um, That's nice. So why is that? When I read all these articles about you, I feel like I know you. You're, you're very open about your private life. You talk about uh, everything. I mean, I don't, I don't really have much to hide. And if people want to know... I don't think, I mean, of course, there are things that I wouldn't say, but there are many of the things that, um, that happened to me in my life I'm proud of. So yeah. it can be useful to others. I love reading biographies because they make you realize that there are so many ways to live life. And the obits on the last page of The Economist are like my favorite weekly uh, pleasure, you know, yeah. because... It's so inspiring to see how many ways there are to live life. Um, and we only have one chance, depending on which religion you are, uh, you belong to. But we have, during this one chance, we have a way to get to know millions of others. And that's to me what's, what's, what matters. I'm sure many people would think about what, what really drives you? What, what are you, what makes you move forward here? I mean, curiosity obviously is something, yeah. but can Curiosity, you, can, can yeah. you? Yeah. Uh, it really is truly that. Uh, one of my favorite 
exclamation is adventure. Like, you know, and, and my husband always laughs because if he, if he says, let's go to Williamsburg for breakfast and it's like, immediately, <laughs> just the idea of getting anywhere where I don't usually go makes me really happy. And my favorite thing is traveling. I really love it. Uh-huh. People might find some of my trips extend like strenuous and not fun and to me it's just a delight you love new york of course and the south (laughs) the south cove any other favorite places in new york well my favorite place is i really love being on the subway (laughs) really i really i really do i really love red hook and the view from there Uh i love let's see what else i love the east river like on the Manhattan side, I love being under the FDR drive between the two bridges, right? Uh-huh. There's that particular. And once upon a time, you know, it used to be only people from Chinatown. There used to be the elders from Chinatown doing Tai Chi. And now it's becoming a little, you know, it's 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 opening up very much to the rest of Manhattan, but it's still quite great. I love going to the South Street seaport and seeing three bridges in a row. I mean, I could go on. I love the ferries because you get to see, <laughs> yeah. you know, the ferries right now are really pretty amazing. So uh, these are just a few of the places I could go on for a while, but there are many places I love. What are you working on right this uh, moment here? So I'm working on an exhibition that will open, you know, right now there's this exhibition at MoMA called Never Alone that is about the video games that are in the MoMA collection. Uh, it's going to come down in the middle of July and then we're going to install an exhibition that's called Life Cycles that is about materials, the materials of contemporary design. So I'm going to go from digital to very tangible now. And it's going to be an exhibition. I haven't counted how many objects, but they display how materials are central, not only to design, of course, but also to a sustainable view of of design. And the first show that I ever did at MoMA was about materials. That was like 28 years ago. And at that time, it was all about the performance of materials, carbon fiber, this and that, everything like new and innovative. And right now, instead, it's about where materials come from and where they're going to go from the moment of extraction and sourcing to the moment of disposal or reuse or, you know, so it's about that. That's what matters today. Wonderful. I told some friends of mine that I was going to interview you and they say, you have to ask her about artificial intelligence. So this is a uh, request. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, a request. I'm going to sing. Artificial (laughs) intelligence, of course, uh, important subject. The, mm, what I know firsthand is, of course, my use, my everyday use of ChatGPT. I do use it. I admit to it. And also, more seriously, the work that my colleague Michelle Kuo and I have done with Rafik Anadol. Rafik Anadol is an artist that might be familiar to you. He's become one of the faces of AI. He does a series that's called, um, oh my God, how is it called? Machine Dreams? I don't remember. uh, But anyway, um, he has done uh, right now um, a work that is at MoMA that is alive. It's generative. So it's not a video. It's really gigantic. It's in the lobby of the museum, in the gun lobby. And it's an AI that keeps on moving around the MoMA collection and looks at what is in the liminal space between one painting and the other. So it's never about the paintings per se. You don't see the paintings. You see the AI imagining what could be in between. 
And it's really stunning. I mean, I could talk about AI a lot, but I think mm -hmm. that that's what your friend might want to know. Yeah. In, when it comes to art and when it comes to curating, this AI has shown me a different way to consider the collection. And it's really quite mesmerizing. Sometimes I do sit in front of it for a while, and all of a sudden I see modern art or a different history of modern art through a different mind. So do I believe in the singularity? Do I believe that AI is pernicious? Do I believe, believe, believe? I believe many things, but uh, what I try to do through my work as a curator and also with AI works that are in the museum is to try and strengthen every individual's critical sense. Because I believe that it's about how you use tools and we don't, our principles are very weak sometimes when comfort and ease are at, at stake. Sometimes we give up some of the uh, securities and some of the principles that we should not give up. Hmm. Wonderful. And in conclusion, um, I read about you when you talked about yourself and your, your career that I found myself catching waves, even big scary ones, all my life. What's the next wave coming around the corner for you? That's a very good question. Um, but the waves are coming around the corner all the time. And I am always paddling. It's about which one will I have the courage to pick. So this is really me right now, like there with the muscles and the board. And I'm like, okay, which one? <laughs> <You know? laughs> Sounds wonderful. Uh, Paola, thank you so much. This has been a great honor for me. I've been wanting to interview you for many years and uh, now it's happened. Thanks to your thank you, generosity. Thank you, Anders. Take good care. And thank you for the attention. Ciao. Bye. This is Art Insiders New York and my name is Anders Holst. If you enjoyed this episode and have family and friends who love New York and are passionate about the world of art design and architecture, please spread the word by following us on artinsidersnewyork.com or liking us on our Facebook page, Art Insiders New York. It's very much appreciated. Thank you. This episode was produced by UOM LLC, copyright 2023.